For those who have not participated in a Thieves Market previously, you are in for a real treat. And for any of you who were there at this session at the Oregon ACP this fall, don't cheat by guessing the answers you already know. Uh, our MC today is Dr. Alex Schaefer. He's a practicing internal medicine physician and faculty with our residency program here at St. Vincent's. He is a talented and enthusiastic teacher. We're so excited to have him with us today. Uh, take it away, Dr. Schaefer. Well, thank you, Laura. It's a very nice to be here this morning. And uh, I'm hoping all of you can see my screen there. Is that correct, Laura? I am not Indeed. yet. We've got you. Okay, good enough. Well, listen, uh, I need your participation today. And in order to do that, we have to do something special. We're going to use Poll Everywhere. And you can participate in one of three ways that you see on the screen here. You can download the app real quick from the App Store or Google Play. You can go to a separate web browser and go to pollev.com slash David Scrace M571, exactly what's up there, and just enter that in. That address will get you where you need to be. Or you can use your phone and text the address 22333 and, and uh, enter the text David Scrace M571. I'm going to keep that up on the screen for the next slide or two. This is so you can participate today and win. You will need to be, in order to answer and to win, you will need to be toggling back and forth uh, when, when you have a guess about the diagnosis. So our learning objectives today, how does my clinical decision-making on interesting and unusual cases compare with that of other internists? Can internal medicine really be this much fun? And will I achieve instant fame and fortune by correctly diagnosing a case before it is presented on the screen? That's the question, my friends. Uh, I have some disclosures. I stole a bunch of stuff from the internet. I stole from the creator of Thieves Market, Dr. David Scrace, who's been doing this for over 20 years at the National ACP meeting and other places. He is the, he is, uh, the chair, chief of the uh, geriatric division at the University of New Mexico on leave because he is the Secretary of Human Services right now for the state of New Mexico. And he was a new master of the ACP last year. So many of you may have uh, heard of a thieves market before, but here's how the cases work. I'm gonna present three cases today. I'm gonna present the history, some key examination findings, basic lab and imaging studies, key diagnostic tests, and a summary at the end of the diagnostic entity. Here is my role this morning. I'm not gonna lie to you, although there will be limited opportunities for questions today because of our timing and our format. I will not always report all of the facts up front, neither do patients, so, you know, live with it. I will not withhold information when asked a direct question. I will not answer all questions because of our timing and format today. And I'm going to have fun. I know that, I hope that you will too. I'm also gonna give the winners $1 million. So you want to be a winner today and get your $1 million. There've been lots of winners in the past. Um, here they are. Pictures of the winners are here from past presentations. You can see uh, we have winners going back to 2017. And on the right, you see a large panel, just uh, some of the small numbers of people who won at the national level over the years. Um, I'd like you to send me a headshot so if you win so that you can also be added to our panel here and we'll send it on to Dr. Scrays at the Intergalactic Headquarters for Thieves Market. Uh, as Laura already mentioned, sadly this presentation today is exactly the same cases as those that I gave at the Oregon ACP fabulous online meeting uh, back in November of 2020. So uh, if you're listening again today, maybe you can get CME twice for the same presentation. That's kind of up to you. Now, five tips for using poll anywhere, hopefully poll everywhere, that should say. Um, you can only vote once and you should try to decide really quickly. I'm going to give people only about 10 seconds or so to decide. It's just like Tinder, right? But if you get the wrong answer, um, uh, no one will know. And if you don't have a cell phone or a computer to do this, I wonder if I can interest you in some James Taylor albums on 8-track. Now, 
if you don't know how to send a text message, you should talk to one of your grandchildren. They can tell you, they can also tell you what Tinder is probably. Now, to submit a diagnosis today, Poll Everywhere is just for the questions I'm going to ask the audience. But if you want to win, you need to chat a diagnosis. Use the Teams chat function in order to win. You are the thieves. That's where thieves markets come from. You're going to try to steal the diagnosis and send it in by chat before it hits the screen and before anyone else does. And if you do that first, then you win. Uh, the requirements to win are as follows. You must type in the exact diagnosis and we must acknowledge it. Laura's going to interrupt me now and then to tell me what what diagnoses that people have guessed. Every few minutes we'll stop and acknowledge those guesses. We will not confirm that a guess is correct until the end of the case. So listen up, try not to chat a diagnosis that's already been chatted. Um, and of course you have to participate today to submit your diagnosis. Um, we we have to know who you are. So if you are logged into Teams with your Providence email, we will know who you are. But if you're logged in anonymously, then you need to add some kind of name so we can identify you later. Coco Kid, Coco Vid here, uh, guest systemic lupus, uh, and uh, Wooly Marmot MD, guest hemophilia B, which by the way was the diagnosis of last year's one of last year's thieves market cases. So just as, a, as an example now, if I say a 32-year-old spelunker who has recently been bitten by a bat presented with, at that point, you would as fast as you can go to the chat and enter rabies and also some identifying features here. Now, let's see my friends. Uh, what to put in the chat? Remember, everyone can see the chat record, so keep that in mind, please. We will not ridicule guesses today unless they are ridiculous. Uh, if I do ridicule your guess, I won't name you. Um, acceptable chats, here's some examples. Uh, your novel diagnosis, rabies. Uh, I, you, could, you could chat, I chatted rabies, but you didn't mention it or brief questions about the cases and Laura will be vetting those and may interrupt me to ask some if it makes some sense. Here are some examples, my friends, of, of good chats. You could guess Jakob Greitzfeldt disease. That's not any of the diagnoses today or I wouldn't have put it up there. You could say, I guessed syphilis, but you haven't mentioned it. You could chat, does he have parrots at home if you think that might be relevant for the case. Here are some examples of chats that don't work sepsis as a diagnosis because it's not specific enough or I also think it's rabies we're glad but we don't really care and I chatted rabies first is also something we're not going to fight off online today um, I've put up some examples here of some even worse chats which I'll let you peruse for just a moment there while you're getting ready to to test out our audience response system um, so let's just give that a go here, my friends. I'm going to go ahead and activate. Now you have about 10 seconds to tell me my favorite thing about virtual meetings is that number one, pants are optional. Number two, I only see the torso of my colleagues who opt to go pantless. Number three, no one hears when I don't laugh at sophomoric jokes. Number four, no one hears when I do laugh at sophomoric jokes. And number five, wait, you're saying it's okay if I don't wear pants or laugh at sophomoric jokes. So let's just see what kind of responses we get. Not too many. Please try to respond now. Let's see if we can't get people logged in to poll everywhere. Remember, if you've got a, a browser in front of you, you can just go to pollev.com slash davidsgracem571. And now we're getting some, some more answers there. That's terrific. Okay, good. Now, unfortunately, I do see that there are some people here who are happy that no one hears when I don't laugh at sophomoric jokes. I see about five people. Those five people maybe should consider opening another window and logging in to the ABIM and working on their MOC questions in the, la in the next hour. That might be a better use of your time. We have three cases. Let's get started. A man with arthralgias, a woman with altered mental status postpartum, and a 34-year-old male soldier with testicular pain. This is our first case, my friends. We have 
a 35-year-old man. Oh, I should pause here. All of these cases we first did for the for I first did for the combined armed services ACP chapter. So they have a military service theme. That may or may not be a hint. A 35-year-old Caucasian male with a seven-year history of gradually worsening arthralgias. They had an insidious onset. It started in the knuckles, then the large and the small joints in all extremities. He doesn't have spinal pain, but he does have some stiffness in the morning, lasting more than 60 minutes. The pain is better with movement. It's worse with rest, and he gets some relief with acetaminophen. His past medical history is notable for right upper quadrant pain episodic a year ago, leading to a cholecystectomy. He had a history of bloody diarrhea attributed to hemorrhoids. He had a recent colonoscope and upper endoscopy that were unremarkable. He had celiac testing that was negative. He also reported occasional bouts of pruritus and itching, but no rash. His father died from hepatitis C and his mother died from some other sort of cancer. Now, it happened in this case that we didn't get any social history for this patient, so I made one up. I'm going to give you an entirely fictitious social history. Uh, he smoked for three years, uh, alcohol none, marital status is single, he lives with his roommates, and he has no children. Uh, and some, a, little, a little additional entirely fictitious history, his diet consists of raw oysters and wild mushrooms. Uh, substances include spice, huffing, and kratom. A sexual history, he's promiscuous and indiscriminate. He works as a coal miner and a part-time chimney sweep. His hobbies include shipbreaking and taxidermy. And he recently traveled to the Central Valley of California, the Congo, the Rocky Mountains, Mecca, and a fraternity party held in the woods of New England. Oh, we have one more bit of a direly fictitious social history. He has three parrots at home, uh, in case you're interested. They are rescue parrots, and uh, their names are Sneezy, Wheezy and dyspnea. But maybe we should get back today to our actual facts about this patient who has these arthralgias and pain. His vital signs were normal. ENT, heart, skin, and musculoskeletal exam were largely normal, except there was a little tenderness to palpation involving the fourth PIP joint on the hand. Great. Yes. And Dr. Schaefer, oh, with yes. that robust social history rolling in, we have a few guesses, including Lyme, gonorrhea, and writers. Terrific. Do any of those people remember that the social history was fictitious? But that's good. All right. Good diagnosis. Thank you for interrupting, Laura. Just keep doing that when needed. Now, he has some lab tests you can see on the board there. Uh, normal CBC, LFTs, Chem 7, CRPs. Vitamin D was a little low, and his chest X-ray was unremarkable. Indeed, he'd actually had an x-ray of the knee about a year prior. You can see it up there. Now, let's go to our audience response system. Um, you have about 10 seconds here. Tell me, at this point, what would you do? Would you order an x-ray of the hands, order a CT of the abdomen and pelvis with and without contrast, and a fecal calprotectin? Maybe try to find the gallbladder pathology report. Maybe you'd order a whole bunch of labs. Or maybe you'd refer the patient to rheumatology because you know that ordering all those labs is really the only fun they ever have in rheumatology. What would you do? Let's just see. You have a couple of more seconds. Maybe we'll get the responses here. All right. Well, we have some people who are thinking that x-rays would be a good idea, finding the gallbladder. A lot of people like the idea of, 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 of a bunch of labs. Someone would just refer to rheumatology, but not too many of you here. It's helpful to see. Mm -hmm. Right. The rheumatology diagnoses are rolling in ulcerative colitis, uh -huh. associated with ankylosing spondylitis, and rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, great diagnoses. Well, in fact, this patient did get a rheumatology consult, and the rheumatologist said that he had large and small joint symmetric polyarthralgias, maybe polyarthritis. He has GI symptoms, some itching, and low vitamin D levels. More labs results come back. Most of those labs are negative. ANA, RF, anti-CCP, sed rate, uric acid, HLA-B27 allele was negative, normal complement levels, and x-rays of the hands were all normal. He even has a pelvic x-ray, which I'll let you stare at as long as you want. Well, not really, but there it is. Okay. 
So he goes back to the rheumatologist just for follow-up, and the rheumatologist notes that his symptoms are unchanged, his examination is unchanged, and the rheumatologist's uncertainty is unchanged. In fact, the patient is, quote, discharged to PCP. However, one month later, the patient complains of bilateral knee pain for two weeks, redness, swelling, reduced range of motion. He says that it it blossomed very quickly over 12 to 24 hours, and then it got better after about five days, but it was still lingering a bit. The rheumatologist looks at him and finds that the left knee is a little bit swollen and the right knee is a little bit warm. So what would you do at this point? Here's our audience participation again. Would you aspirate the left knee? Would you get another serum uric acid level? Order x-rays of the knees again? try to review the cholecystectomy reported pathology, or at long last care about the difference between Wilson disease and Whipple disease. Let's see, what do people say? I'm gonna show responses as we go along here, because it, it makes me feel more alive when I can see you all voting. We have one vote to aspirate the knee. Someone else is thinking they'd go back to the books about the W diseases that they always get confused about. Lots of aspirations and people are not so much interested in other tests. Okay. Well, in fact, what happens here is that the rheumatologist does do a diagnostic and therapeutic arthrocentesis of the left knee. However, he notes, despite milking the knee, no fluid was aspirated. Now, the truth is the rheumatologist who helped, who wrote this case, actually sent a picture to demonstrate exactly how to milk the structure involved so that you can get a positive tap if you want. This is the actual picture that he sent. Uh, more audience participation now. I think the most common reason for a dry tap arthrocentesis is A, absence of an effusion, B, the needle missing the joint, C, the needle clogging, D, the needle bending, or E, the rheumatologist milking the wrong structure. Let's see now, what do people think is the correct answer? Uh, absence of an effusion, okay. Give the rheumatologist a break. That's what we're all going for here. Uh, the needle missing the joint, sure. The needle clogging, no one's gonna admit to the needle bending, but I have to admit, I've seen that before. There we go, all right. Well, I'm not sure I have an answer here. I just wanted to make a joke about the cow picture, really. But absence of an effusion. Well, in this particular- Great, we've got a few more guesses rolling in, including endocarditis, uh -huh. hemochromatosis, and uh -huh. brucellosis. Okay. We also have a comment, should we limit the number of guesses from a single person? And I say, no, guess away. Guess away, oh my goodness. Yes, if it makes you feel good, that's what it's about. We're here to have fun, my friends. Now, the MRI, knock yourselves out, as they say. The MRI of the left knee was done without contrast and it showed a small knee effusion. So there was something theoretically there to aspirate and there were also minimal degenerative changes in the knee. Now. Six months later, the patient is complaining of low-grade flares of the knee. Pain persists, morning stiffness for 20 minutes. The exam was really unrevealing. Another uric acid is again normal, sed rate undetectable, CRP, Lyme studies undetectable, 1433 ETA protein, that's an early marker of rheumatoid arthritis was negative. And the plan from the rheumatologist is, why don't you just come back when you really need me, okay? So I think, audience participation here now, I think that the two most unusual aspects of this case are a young man with arthritis and cholecystectomy, B, degenerative changes in a young knee but no history of trauma, C, knee effusions with normal markers of inflammation, D, a history of bloody diarrhea and arthritis but no CT of the abdomen as yet, or E, presentation of a case, uh, at, that's what I should say, grand rounds, despite an entirely fabricated social history. All right, people like the idea here so far, the two people who I, who I can see, like the idea of CT of the abdomen. Some people are shocked, shocked, I tell you, about a fabricated social history. And uh, we have some people who are interested in the other answers. Well, 
The patient is discharged. Um, however, he comes back one month later. He requests urgent evaluation. This time he says he's had rapid onset of pain and swelling over six to 12 hours involving both knees. These pictures you see are the pictures that the patient took of his own knees and brought into the doctor. Um, he denies any trauma. Now, the evaluation of his acute knee swelling a few days later, when seen, his knees were much improved. Uh, ferritin and B12 were normal. Uric acid was again normal and a diagnostic test was performed. So I think the diagnostic test was what? A CT of the abdomen uh, uh, and pelvis, additional family history and Curtis always love more history successful arthrocentesis after milking the actual knee, a fourth measurement of the uric acid concentration, or some test I didn't learn about in medical school. So let's see what people are guessing here. All right, we have uh, someone thinking, I don't know what the test was. Some people are going with the CT, arthrocentesis. People have given up on gout as a diagnosis here. Gout could only be possible because I've hinted at it so often, it would be a nice twist, wouldn't it? So let's see. Well, we're at the point, my friends, where we have any last guesses. Uh, you can either guess about the diagnosis or you can guess who this is a picture of. Laura, any last guesses I should know about there? Uh, we did have a shout out for lupus just a mm -hmm. bit ago. Okay. Syphilis is coming through because why not? Who would yeah. who would ever miss syphilis? Exactly, exactly. All right. Well, uh, in the picture here, we have John F. Kennedy with photographs of him in the Navy. Remember our military theme today. So, Laura, I think we don't have a winner for this case. Is that right? That sounds correct to me. Well, I'm always sad to see that. So no fireworks except that it's been fun anyway. The diagnosis here, my friends, is familial Mediterranean fever. In fact, this patient is heterozygous for a particular variant that I'm gonna tell you about. So let's talk about familial Mediterranean fever and how it fits in this case today. This is a common disease. One in 200 Mediterranean Jews, Armenians, Turks, and Arabs uh, uh, have this disease. 20% of these populations carry one of the genes that is known, one of the gene mutations that's known to be associated. And for example, in North African Jews who have FMF, 90% of them share the same specific mutation. However, FMF occurs anywhere in the world with other mutations and in other mutations, the phenotypes are more variable. So the disease has a broad spectrum of presentations. It has a fascinating history, FMF. It's spread by, it's spread, I think I can show you this here, by land migration. It's spread um, by sailors through the Mediterranean and it also spread here through North Africa through the Muslim conquest of Spain. And then, it spread to the new world. It spread, of course, by um, sailing and by trade, and it also made it to East Asia via the Silk Road here. So what are the symptoms? FMF causes pleuritis, peritonitis, arthritis, rash, often hepatosplenomegaly, um, excuse me, often uh, nodes and spleen enlarged, and it's often complicated by amyloidosis. The typical, so, so you get belly pain, chest pain, tenderness, muscle pain, uh, pain and swelling in the joints. The rash is most typical, what you see here pictured, this erysipelas-like rash that you often see in the distal uh, extremities. Um, and in the right lower corner here, you see just a, a general picture of secondary amyloidosis uh, and the manifestations there. The diagnostic criteria, I don't think you need to memorize, but it's really helpful to understand how the disease pre presents. There are a couple different criteria, but the newer ones are simplified, and it calls for three or more typical attacks of pericarditis, peritonitis, pleuritis, monoarthritis, or even just lone fever. What makes an attack typical? Because you have to have three attacks that meet these criteria. That is to say, they're recurrent. It happens at least three times. 
it includes fever and it lasts from 12 to 72 hours. And, and, and that really, that interval is very important there. If these attacks mu last much longer, they're not typical. If they're just there for an hour or two, they're not typical. Now there are minor criteria that include atypical criteria. Um, and in fact, in this particular case, we had a patient who has arthritis dominant with no typical symptoms, but he met minor criteria. He had self-limited attacks, absence of fever, which is part of the definition of an incomplete attack. Furthermore, he had a huge, pretty, pretty huge workup by a rheumatologist ruling out other possibilities. His episodes of pruritus and itching are not, are not um, very uh, particular for the disease, but are certainly consistent with it. And we might, we might plausibly suggest that his cholecystectomy for recurrent abdominal pain at his young age was actually for recurrent episodes of peritonitis. We don't really know. And then of course, he has a pathologic mutation that's known. So that's how we come to the diagnosis. What's going on with this disease? What is going on with FMF? The attacks have no obvious cause and no obvious triggers. It's almost as if the inflammation was automatic, or perhaps we should say auto-inflammatory. Auto-inflammatory. What is auto-inflammatory disease, you may ask? I mean, here, here are cars that are catching fire. I don't think that's what we mean. This is an actual video of uh, Mary McCormick's husband's Tesla catching fire all by itself in the middle of the street, but that's probably not where we mean to be headed today. Um, you do wonder, is spontaneous combustion a real thing in the world? And yes, the answer is yes. There's linseed oil, for example, can do this. That's why you don't want to have a pile of paint rags in your basement. And hot, wet hay can burst into flames. They're called haystack fires. These are real things. But our question today is, do humans combust spontaneously? Is there auto-inflammatory disease in humans? Well, we could go back in history to 1885, late on Christmas Eve in Seneca, Illinois, when Matilda Rooney was alone in her kitchen and supposedly she burst into flames all of the sudden um, and uh, there wasn't much left of her. Or even earlier than that, there is the renowned case of the Countess of Bandi Cesanti in Verona in 1731. And on April 3rd, she went to bed feeling not well. And in the morning, the maid found only, quote, a heap of ashes two legs untouched from the foot to the knee with their stockings on, and all the rest was ashes, which when taken up left a peculiar stinking moisture. The bed received no damage. A priest was called in and, and, and from Verona to investigate and determined that the fire was caused in her entrails by inflamed effluvia of blood, by juices and fermentations in the stomach, and many combustible matters abundant in living bodies. Indeed, in 1951, Mary Reeser, a plump 67-year-old woman in St. Petersburg, Florida, went to bed at 5 a.m. Her landlady smelled smoke and found only a pile of ashes in the corner, which at first was thought to be the remains of Mary's chair, but among the ashes, they found Mary's leg still wearing a slipper. So you can make what you want to of these cases of spontaneous human combustion, but let's ask about true spontaneous human combustion. That is to say auto-inflammatory disease. What is it? So it is a path, pathogenic inflammation due to dysregulation of the innate immune system. So it's independent of adaptive immunity, independent of antigen exposure, and it's distinct from autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. FMF is the one that is the best characterized and it's the most prevalent, but others are genetically diverse, but they're very clinically similar. Fever, rash, serositis, arthritis, sometimes lymphadenopathy and enlarged spleen, complicated by amyloidosis sometimes. They, they may be triggered by cold weather, infection, exercise, surgery, and sometimes they are spontaneous. Here's kind of a smattering sampling of them. 
there are many of these auto-inflammatory diseases, but familial cold urticaria, Stills disease, periodic fever, Muckle-Wells syndrome, and cyclic neutropenia. So what's going on exactly here? Well, there is this large filamentous signaling platform with an attitude called the inflammasome. And the inflammasome you see pictured here is this intracellular structure. And basically it's responsible over here for making interleukin 1b and caspase 1. And those are nasty drivers of inflammation. We now have a drug, by the way, hot off the presses from October. There is a drug against interleukin 1b that has been shown to reduce the uh, incidence of the need for knee replacement in patients who have osteoarthritis of the knee. Imagine that we may actually have a treatment for osteoarthritis of the knee besides surgery. Um, so in, in familial Mediterranean fever, there is a gene called the MEFV gene and it encodes pyrin. Pyrin is found in white blood cells where it regulates the inflammasome, which is this danger sensing tangle of proteins. And in FMF, this mutated irritable pyrin has a low threshold for inflammasome activation. And the result is poof, seemingly unprovoked inflammation without infection or other triggers. Here's an old cartoon, an alarming case of spontaneous combustion. Oh, there's Pa's boots, but where's Pa coming out of a gin joint? Now, this patient had one of the, there's about 57 different alleles that are known to be associated with this disease. This patient had a lesser known one, but guess what? It was recently recognized in Turkey, the one that he has, and its phenotype is severe arthritis, that is predominant, some GI symptoms, even when it's heterozygous, all right? Um, uh, a last detail about FMF is that it tracks with the plague. And um, I mean, you might ask, why does FMF exist with such prevalence? And the answer is that it probably provides some protection against plague, just like sickle cell can provide some protection against malaria. This works in the same way. I'm not going to give you all the data about that, but that's probably why this disease has persisted so much. Um, let me get rid of some of these colors here. There we go. So the treatment and follow-up of this patient, he got colchicine, the standard treatment. It's, it, it's, it's effective a lot and it prevents secondary amyloidosis. It wasn't very helpful in this patient. And so some second, second tier treatments were tried, IL-1 inhibitors, um, such as canakinumab or anakinra. So uh, do you wonder, are you sure this is the diagnosis? Maybe you doubt a little bit. Well, I want to point out in 1964 in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, Helen Conway's remains were found after only a few minutes by herself and with only minor damage in the room. Her legs were left here and you can clearly see they look just like our patient's legs. There can't be much doubt about the diagnosis. Well, I'm sorry this time we did not have a winner, um, but we're going to move on to our next case and see if we can find some winners today. So our next case is a 23-year-old woman with altered mental status postpartum. Some special thanks here because uh, some of these slides are adapted from a previous Thieves Market case with a slightly different diagnosis. Um, I prepared this for the military. They insisted that I say that the views expressed here are those of the authors and do not reflect the official policy of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the US government. I felt a need to add that indeed, any and all offensive views factoids, misleading medical information, insults, those intentional, ostensibly unintentional, typos, thefts, lies, foul errors of omission, and omission of foul errors do not reflect the policy of not only the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, and the U.S. government, but also not Captain Robert Spiller, who is a conscientious and fine young resident whose only mistake was to trust me and should be attributed solely to his co-author. So on to our case, my friends. We have a 23-year-old woman <clears throat> presenting to the emergency room for altered mental status. She is four days postpartum. Earlier in the day, the patient reported finding difficulty and was seeing spots while breastfeeding. She was driven home from the hospital by her mother and the boyfriend returned several hours later. He found her confused with dilated pupils, repetitive speech, and laughing inappropriately. So audience response, 
I think what she was saying while laughing inappropriately was, it's just that I'd forgotten how sweet it is to go one damn minute without feeling like I have to pee. Uh, B, you're not going to believe this, but ha ha ha, mom and I left the baby in the parking lot. C, no, I don't mind that you went golfing, dear. D, seriously, dear, I completely understand. It's just a new baby. Or E, no, seriously, have you seen the baby? So let's see what people have to say. We have one person who's willing to make a guess uh, about all of my dad joke answers. There they are. All right, we've got some people about the golfing, completely understand. Okay, so the boyfriend attempted to drive the patient to the emergency room, but on route, he called 911 because she was attempting to take off all of her clothes in the car. While in the emergency room, she lost consciousness and deteriorated to a Glasgow trauma scale of four. She became unresponsive to sternal rub and she was intubated. I'll just interrupt for a couple early guesses before yes. the case even started. Thank you for eclampsia. And then we've got an anticholinergic <laughs> toxicity. Very good. All right. I like both of those. Um, pregnancy, if people could start guessing about the third case if they want right now, there's no rules against that. I just want to say. So um, <clears throat> her past medical history is, was notable by complications of pregnancy, including PPROM 34 plus 4, group B strep treated with penicillin G, perineal and labial lacerations. She has a history of seizures last occurring about four years ago, but she's not on any anti-epileptic treatment. She has a history of asthma and she has non-specific learning difficulty that has required accommodations. So audience participation here, I think PPROM stands for what? Premature rupture of uh, the membranes is choice B. Premature placental range of motion is choice A. Preventable positive RH obstetrical morbidity, uh, prominent pregnancy-related overflow of the midriff, or patient probably requires consultants other than internal medicine. Those are your choices for this complicated patient. What sort of responses? All right, some people remember something from their OB rotation some years ago. Many years ago, in my case, I can tell you. All right. So other history, um, she doesn't drink, uh, use tobacco or illicit substances. Family history is unremarkable. Her mother's of Filipino descent. Father's history is unknown. Uh, she had uh, some surgery on a limb about uh, some years ago and for a fracture. And she takes albuterol now and then and some vitamins. On physical exam, she had a normal blood pressure and heart rate, respiration for 14. Um, Temperature was fine. She was satting fine. She really had a pretty much unremarkable exam. Her belly was uh, soft and non-tender, consistent with her recent postpartum status. And uh, genitalia sh showed scant blood, again, consistent with her postpartum status. De uh, skin um, was uh, showed no pallor, rash, or abrasions. She was not cyanotic and did not have jaundice. A neurologic exam at this time, she was uncooperative exam. She'd had slurred speech. Pupils were uh, markedly dilated. Uh, she moves all extremities symmetrically. She did not have any clonus. Now, while in the emergency room, uh, I think we already said she became un uh, unresponsive. So um, I think, here we go. Uh, next audience response question here. At this point, what would you do? I wanna know. Would you do a urine drug screen toxicology test? It was your choice A, thyroid studies, brain imaging, check a lactic acid, maybe check the boyfriend's golf handicap and the phone number for Child Protective Services. All right, let's see what people have to say there. All right, we have a little bit of smattering among people who have answered. Keep going there, my friends, if you have other answers. All right, we wanna know brain imaging. All right, that's what we're guessing here. Now, here's a bunch of lab tests. I'm just going to leave them up there for a minute. CBC is uh, remarkable for a little bit of anemia. Uh, her BMP looks pretty good. Her INR is 2.2. Her uh, liver function tests are mildly abnormal, as you can see up there, with, uh, with a, a little bit of a low albumin, a little transaminitis. Alkfos is a bit elevated. Um, lactic acid, TSH, and ammonia are up there, as you can see. 
Uh, she did have a UDS, uh, which was negative for acetaminophen, ethanol, and salicylates. And she had imaging of her, uh, she had CT of her head and neck and her abdomen and pelvis. It showed cholestasis without cholecystitis. Great. And I will just say, before any of that data rolled in, we had <laughs> guesses for postpartum psychosis, uh -huh. factor V Leiden, right. and ABO incompatibility with hemolytic disease of the newborn in the mother. Okay. And NMDA encephalitis. And NMDA encephalitis. All right. These are all really guesses. I, I really uh, appreciate them. Now, uh, what happened? Well, her mentation returned to baseline the next morning and she was extubated. Lactulose was administered and she had brain imaging here. Uh, on, the, on the right, we see an MRI, which was unremarkable. On the left, we see an ultrasound of her liver, which supposedly shows hepatic steatosis. I found it difficult on this view, so I found a different ultrasound view that shows the steatosis uh, uh, a little bit better, and, I, and maybe you can see there, I, I prefer this image. So let's see now. At this point, what would I do? Uh, what would you do? Would you start ceftriaxone, vancomycin, and acyclovir? Would you start hemodialysis? Would you schedule lactulose administration? Maybe you go for a period of, of observation, or would you review Galen's treatise on Infanta Obscura in Vehicularis Truncium? Let's see, what do people want to say here? Show our responses. Period of observation, at least one person. We need some more answers though, don't you think? We need a few more answers here. All right. Well, people are working on those bold moves. Uh-huh. Uh, could it be acute serotonin syndrome could related it be? to postpartum meds? Could it be? Well, that's a question I'm not going to answer right now. Acute serotonin syndrome. I like it. Now people are guessing all over the place here. We have we have quite a bit, uh, but but the plurality wants to do a period of observation. Oh, oh, you're all being influenced now. We see votes changing by the moment. Well, in any case, her cognition remained normal, but the liver test didn't. Her transaminases were mildly abnormal through day six. As you can see here, the INR remained a little bit elevated, as did the ammonia and her bilirubin remained normal. So I think the two most unusual aspects of this case are, what do you think? Delirium and medriasis, breastfeeding and alteration of vision, postpartum status and LFT abnormalities, resolving delirium and persistent hyperammonemia, or girlfriend disrobing in the car and a boyfriend opting to call 911. All right, what do you think is the right answer? Let's see here. All right, we have a number of different guesses here. Some people attracted here and there. All right, we've got this, we've got that. Well, let's see what happened to this woman. Maybe we can sort out what happened to her. Uh, there we are. Well, here's what happened to her. Uh, on days 8 to 10, her transaminases went markedly up to about 1,800. Hmm. Hmm. So what about diseases of pregnancy, my friends? Isn't there always whatever my patient has of pregnancy? Well, yes, indeed, there is acute fatty liver disease of pregnancy. Could that be what's going on here? It's caused by a fatty acid metabolism problem. It can cause, in fact, acute liver failure and delirium. It is more common with multiple gestations, with a male fetus in tween pregnancies and with underweight mothers. So this is not the fatty liver we internists know and love and it's caused by a genetic defect in fatty acid metabolism in the mother. In fact, it's difficult to diagnose. There are these Swanson criteria that have been used and you need six of these 14 criteria without other attributable cause, quote unquote. In fact, our patient meets the criteria in that regard. She had a bright liver, an elevated PT, ammonia, transaminases, encephalopathy, and a high white count. However, our patient has the minimum number of criteria, and it happens that they're not the most common symptoms, the most common criteria our patient doesn't have. Because the most common criteria for fatty liver disease at pregnancy is nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain, acute renal failure, hypoglycemia. This is a disease that rarely presents postpartum, uh, and, and if presenting postpartum, almost all those patients have DIC. So beware the caveat in these diagnostic criteria without other attributable cause. So 
uh, a diagnostic test was performed, and I think it was, go ahead and guess here, liver biopsy, lumbar puncture, EEG, a test possibly mentioned once in medical school, or serology for postpartum spot-seeing medriasis, laugh, get naked while liver dies syndrome. Lara, while they're guessing, any additional guesses here I should know about? We had one for the HELP syndrome. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's show responses here. People are going for liver biopsy, lumbar puncture. All right. And any last guesses about the case or who this person may be? Remembering our military theme. Who could this person be? I like this picture. That's Dwight Eisenhower, my friends. Uh, and um, I happened to find a picture of General Eisenhower and Richard Nixon enjoying the very first ever thieves market uh, some years ago. So there it is. All right. Well, I think we did not get any guesses again. We did not get any, any winners. Is that right, Laura? Last chance. That's correct. Last chance. All right. Well, our diagnosis today, my friends, is a urea cycle disorder. Specifically in this case, the patient has citrullinemia. So what's going on with urea cycle disorders? They are characterized by acute hyperammonemia and delirium that is not well explained by, modest, by the modest liver dysfunction that this patient has. She has no known drugs to raise her ammonia levels, such as valproic acid. She has a normal pH and glucose. That's important in the differential diagnosis here because if you have, let me do a little pen highlighting here. If you have hyperammonemia, I'm actually gonna turn that off. If you have acidosis, then you probably have an organic acidemia, a problem with pyruvate metabolism. If you have a, 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 um, hypoglycemia, you probably have a problem with fatty acid oxidation. But if you have normal glycemia, then you're headed down a different road. The problem there is with urea. So let's talk about the big picture about urea. Remember that the colonic flora make ammonia from protein and from urea and the enterocytes make ammonia from glutamine. Ammonia in the gut enters the portal vein and the liver there by the urea cycle is able to convert it to glutamine and water-soluble urea. That's a good thing because ammonia is quite toxic to multiple tissues. So that's the issue with the urea cycle is it's a great way of getting away of our toxic ammonia, but in citrullinemia and other urea cycle disorders. In this case, our patient has arginine succinate synthetase deficiency. Right there, you can see that gene, excuse me, that, that enzyme is impaired. And so you get no arginosuccinate on lab testing. You get no or, no or reduced levels of arginine. You have very high levels of citrulline, which is what our patient has. And that's the basis of the diagnosis. Um, and uh, we talked about no acidosis, uh, no hypoglycemia. Our problem here is in the center, normal glycemia with hyperammonemia that's otherwise unexplained. You check the amino acids and depending on the pattern, you can make the specific diagnosis. If you have increased citrulline, then the, and, and absent arginosuccinate, um, uh, uh, then you have citrullinemia. However, I should say it doesn't really make a lot of difference which one they have because the presentations really overlap and you can't tell from the clinical presentation which of the specific urea cycle disorders you have. You have to do the testing for that. By the way, the orange cat with the umbrella was a little bit of a hint here. There is a mnemonic that some of you may have heard in medical school, orange colored cats always ask for awesome umbrellas, orange, Colored cats always ask for awesome umbrellas, uh, ornithine, carbamyl, phosphonate, citrulline, aspartate, arginosuccinate, et cetera, down the road. So the urea cycle disorders uh, are, um, are composed of a deficiency in one of six enzymes or two cofactors in the urea cycle. OTC deficiency, X-linked. Um, is the most common one, ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency. That's the most common one. Citrullinemia type one occurs in about one in 250,000 people. So, but like I said, we don't really care about which one because they have overlapping and broad presentations, such as the following. They often prevent, present shortly after birth. 
um, 66% beyond, uh, 66% of them, uh, uh, two thirds of them present beyond the neonat neonatal period. And adults may present acutely as in our case, often when they're catabolically stressed, such as from pregnancy. And they present, adults present with delirium, irritability, strange behavior, and asterixis is not, uh, is not particularly typical in this disease. But more importantly, in this case, the patients can also have chronic subtle symptoms over the course of their lives. Forgetfulness, short attention span, moodiness, and trouble with problem solving. The MRI can even show brain atrophy. In our patient, remember, she had specific, she had these learning difficulties over her life that was may very well have been a manifestation of this disease. It's very heterogeneous and you can confirm it with genetic testing. I'm not gonna go into that. I'm gonna skip over this in the interest of time here. The treatment is to stop protein intake for 12 to 24 hours and to hydrate. Um, dialysis if the hyperammonemia is really terrible. And then you can use nitrogen scavengers to treat, to treat these patients in the long term. There are two drugs for that. Um, and, and sometimes these patients need liver transplant just for their acute liver failure as anyone else with acute liver failure can need. In the chronic, uh, for chronic treatment over time, they often get a, a, a protein restriction that is individualized to what type of urea cycle disorder they have. They get amino acid supplements and nitrogen scavenger drugs, genetic counseling, and sometimes liver transplant um, which of course can be needed acutely, but sometimes has even been done because of intract intractable symptomatic recurrent hyperammonemia over lifetime. Not life-threatening, but disabling, and some people have gotten liver transplant just for that. Um, the prognosis is often pretty poor, but it's not really described. The neurologic outcome depends primarily on the intrinsic disease severity. It's not clear how well our therapeutic interventions really work. In our patient, because of her rising LFT, she was transferred to a transplant center. She was started on um, a, uh, a, 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 a drug, a glycerol phenylbutyrate, which uh, scavenges um, the urea, or excuse me, the ammonia, and um, her LFTs improved, so she didn't need liver transplantation. She had no further episodes of, of encephalopathy, and after about a year, she and her baby were doing quite well. In the interest of time, I'm gonna skip over Princess Letitia of Spain, uh, who has some connection to this disease, although she doesn't have it, but we're gonna skip over that and get to our next case. All right, let's do one more, my friends. Yeah, we'll have time. I might go a few minutes over if you need to leave, please do. Um, a 35-year-old man has testicular pain and he's a soldier. He complains of three weeks of left scrotal pain and swelling of his left leg from the mid-calf distally. Nice previous episodes. His leg swelling does not improve with elevation and rest, and he has noted no worsening after standing or wearing boots for prolonged periods, which is part of his job. He has no dysuria and no discharge. His review of systems is negative, just a little pain and just a little swelling. Um, he does not do routine testicular exams. He has no hepatospermia, pain with ejaculation, scrotal redness or swelling. On his extremities, there is no adenopathy, no myalgias, arthralgias, joint swelling, rashes or bruising. Other history, he doesn't smoke or drink. He exercises every day. He patrols six days a week. He is stationed in Iraq. He sits for 10 hours a day on patrol. Um, he has no family history of testicular cancer, premature cardiac disease, or cancers, no surgery or medical history. When I did this for the armed services, I quizzed them all about where Iraq was, but I think I'm not going to embarrass all of us today uh, by trying to figure that out. We have at least one resident who knows where Iraq is, I'm pretty sure. And, um, but there it is. So on physical exam, he is uh, pretty much a negative exam, no adenopathy. Um, however, um, we find that on his extremities, um, there is mild one plus pitting edema to the mid calf and the left leg with no inguinal adenopathy. The genital exam is remarkable for the absence of erythema. There's no scrotal swelling, but he has mild tenderness and fullness to the left spermatic cord. There's no testicular pain or mass, no penile lesions or urethral discharge. So at this point, what would you do? Obtain a more detailed drug and sexual history, order a lot of blood tests, empirically treat for STD, 
empirically treat for epididymitis or tell the soldier it's just normal congestion and leave the room quickly before he asks any uncomfortable questions. Laura, while they're answering, do we have any guesses here? We have a great smattering coming in, including testicular lymphoma, factor V Leiden, horseshoe kidneys, and pudendal neuralgia. Good. I like horseshoe kidneys. I wouldn't have thought of that, and I can imagine it could cause scrotal uh, it could cause scrotal pain and edema in the leg if the horseshoe kidney kicked you. I guess that's how that would work. I don't otherwise know, but it was it was a great guess. So let's see. A lot of people think ordering a lot of blood tests would be good. More history is a good idea. All right, there we go. Well, let's move on here. So he's treated for epididymitis with 14 days of Cipro, and then he returns. He comes back in two weeks. He's scheduled to return in two weeks. He gets some blood tests, and they show normal urinalysis, albumin, CBC, LFTs, chest x-ray, VDRL, PCR for GC, and chlamydia. An HIV test was sent. He comes to the office two weeks later. There's more history is obtained. He has sex only with his wife, and the last time was about four months ago because he is uh, stationed in Iraq. There's no drug use. His scrotal pain improved for two to three days after the ciprofloxacin, but then it worsened again. Now he has noticeable scrotal enlargement. So at this point, what would you do? Would you treat him for six weeks with uh, trimethoprim sulfa? Would you prescribe compression stockings, refer to a urologist, order a pelvic ultrasound and CT, just prescribe a jock strap perhaps? Let's see what people, order pelvic ultrasound and CT. People like the ultrasound idea. That must be the young generation voting here. They like ultrasound for everything. My mechanic tried to use an ultrasound on my carburetor the other day. Let's see here. All right. We Renal are. cell cancer, perhaps, on that imaging. Okay. And a couple others rolling in include filariasis and yeah. May-Thurner syndrome. May-Thurner syndrome and filariasis. Okay. Treat with six weeks of trimethoprim sulfa, refer to a urologist. So what happens? Well, in fact, he is referred to urology who does an ultrasound. So uh, all of you win that answer. And he's scheduled to return in four weeks. Four weeks later, he comes back. This An abdominal CT and ultrasound was negative for obstructing lesions. He has a repeat urinalysis, prostate exam that are normal. He's given support hose, but they have been unhelpful for his edema. The urologist prescribed four additional weeks of Cipro, which was also ineffective. In fact, four weeks later, he comes back and he still feels, but he feels the issue's not big enough to keep coming back for sick call. They make him keep coming back because, well, he has the curse of being a quote unquote interesting case. So a diagnostic test was performed, my friends. What do you think it was? A testicular biopsy, additional blood test, a testicular ultrasound with guided needle aspiration, a lymphangiogram, and choice five. I just have to apologize. I couldn't think of anything else. Funny, sort of war out there. What can you do? By the way, testicular biopsy number one, please don't vote for that. It's pretty much never, uh, yeah, you pretty much never do that ever. So there we are. What do you guys think here? Lymphangiogram. All right. People like Great. the idea of a. Please, as those are as those are coming in, we do have an additional guess um, for nutcracker syndrome. I'll let you decide if perhaps that's nutcracker, um, but I'll leave that to you, Dr. Schaefer. All right. Well, either way it involves the word nut, which is appropriate to this case, so I'm happy with that. A lymph angiogram. People like that test. Haven't done one of those in many, many years. Well, let's see. Any last guesses for the diagnosis or who it is in this picture? Let's see, any last scores? Let me know if you have any. In the picture here, we have Colin Powell in Vietnam in the middle and as chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff there, I believe at that point on the right. Well, Laura, I believe we have a winner today. The guided needle aspiration of the testicular quote unquote swelling demonstrated the following finding. What is that, Laura? We have a winner, don't In, we? Indeed, ding, ding. We have a winner with filariasis. All right, and tell us who won. That is coming in from Jacob, who I believe can be none other than our resident, Jacob Feeney. 
All right, Jacob. Good guess, my friend. Excellent. Yes, filariasis is the correct diagnosis under non-COVID circumstances. I would be taking your picture right now. Now you're all going to hear about filariasis. I have probably five minutes and you all may need to go, but but so feel free to do that. But I'm just going to go on. Is that OK, Lara? Carry on. Carry on. So if that works, so the diagnosis is lymphatic filariasis here. It's a nematode. Here's a picture of a cross section of it uh, in the spermatic cord. And um, it is caused by Yeah, I know I'm supposed to practice that before, but I didn't. Uh, Bancroftii and uh, another organism. It's transmitted by mosquitoes. By the way, don't get confused. There are two principal causes of the phenotype of elephantiasis in the world. Lymphatic filariasis is one of them and podoconiosis is the other. Podoconiosis is an entirely different disease. It is caused by microsilica particles found in volcanic red clay that enter through the skin of the feet and obstruct the lymphatics, but it's found at high altitudes, much higher than the mosquitoes uh, can get for uh, who transmit filarial infection. So it's easy to tell these things apart unless you're someone who goes up and down mountains and happens to end up with both. In any case, um, our patient has lymphatic filariasis, which is a terrible disease that is endemic in 72 tropical countries. As you can see on the map, 1.4 billion people are at risk for this disease. 40 million people in the world have clinical manifestations of it. 15 million of those have elephantiasis and 25 million have the genital swelling, usually a scrotal hydrocele. It's a terribly stigmatizing disease. This is the life cycle of the organism. The adults obstruct the lymphatics. The adults make these microfilarii that obstruct the lymphatics. But the, the, um, however, the microfilaria can't reproduce new adults in the human. They have to go back through the mosquito and come back into the human. So there's this cycle there. Um, just in the interest of time, you don't get to guess how long the adults' worms live. They live for five to eight years in the human host. This is an old disease. Here's a, here are statues of the Pharaoh Mentuhotep II from 2000 BCE. Enormous legs not seen in other um, Egyptian statues, probably elephantiasis. Uh, the Nok culture sculptures from about 500 CE, this is in the area of present day Nigeria, show scrotal enlargement. Um, from 1859, here's this beautiful print from Japan, probably showing scrotal enlargement from filariasis. Indeed, filariasis was even endemic in the United States because of the slave trade. Um, uh, but a new sewage systems in the 1890s accidentally and fortuitously destroyed the vector's habitat. So the last endemic cases were seen in the 1930s near Charleston, South Carolina. Um, we had a cultural competency moment in 1944. If you look into the literature, it says that no special correlation exists between the incidence of infection and the race or occupation of the individual has been noted. That was almost certainly not true if anyone had been paying attention at the time. Filariasis is still today occasionally imported into the United States. It's not endemic anymore, but some immigrants bring it in, occasionally someone in the military and a few long-term travels travelers will get it. So there are about maybe, um, there are just a handful of cases. 60 people are admitted to the United States every year for filariasis, but those are different organisms, zoonotic infections that don't cause elephantiasis or edema. So don't get confused by that. Um, there's ocular involvement from different organisms, loa loa, mansonellii um, causes uh, ocular involvement. Uh, these worms occupy the subcutaneous layer of the skin. Um, and uh, you can see a little uh, uh, video that I'm showing here. Hopefully that will play well. This is just worth watching for a moment. Um, loa loa causes the ocular version and oncocircovolvulus causes river blindness. These are all different filarial diseases. There it is, there's the worm. All right, uh, you would normally get to uh, guess uh, whether or not you think that uh, as far as lymphatic filariasis pictures go, this was creepy, creepier than the scrotal pictures, or you're not sure, please pass the spaghetti. Those are all your choices. So I'm going to spend just a minute or two more. Treatment of this disease, it's hard to eliminate the adults that, or, and, the, and, the, and the microfilaria that cause the swelling. And so it's very difficult to treat. Hydrocelectomy is often the treatment in the developing world in particular. We need more surgeons doing that. 
There's a kit on the right designed to train surgeons in, in under-resourced parts of the world about how to do this surgery. But there are international efforts to get this disease to go away. Um, and it is one of now nine eradicable, supposedly eradicable diseases on the planet, including guinea worm, polio, mumps, rubella, lymphatic filariasis, cystocercosis, measles, yaws, and maybe in the long term, malaria. How do we get rid of LF? Well, you use these drugs, ivermectin, albendazole, and, and DEC. The regimen depends on the local rates of co-infection with other nematodes. You use a strategy of mass drug administration. Why does that work? Because once dosing yearly in a population reduces the microfilaria in the blood, and that's the reservoir for spread of the disease via mosquito to other humans. If you treat the population once a year for seven years, you break the cycle of transmission. Does this work? Yes, we're gonna skip that cultural competency moment. Does this work? Yes. 18 countries have eliminated this disease. You can see them in yellow here. I'm going to have Tonga in 2017, Indonesia, Kiribati, Togo, etc. In March of, by March of 2020, the World Health Organization noted that 7.7 billion treatments have been given in the last 20 years. 600 million people no longer required preventative chemotherapy because of successful mass administration. It costs less than a dollar a year per person, so it's extremely cost-effective. Um, our patient was treated with these drugs. His pain resolved. He actually did quite well. Nowadays, we'd probably use doxycycline. There is some evidence that that kills the adult worms. And to finish up, we have the winner in the individual category, this poor unfortunate gentleman whose scrotum ended up in a museum. And we also have a winner in the group category, these uh, unfortunate gentlemen, uh, probably in Africa, based on the picture. Thank you very much. This is Thieves Market. Congratulations to Jacob, our winner today. Sorry that I went over a bit. If you have a case that you think is going to work for this, let me know. We'll only need an hour or two of your time to put the case on preliminary slides, and I'll fill in the rest. Please let me know. Thank you very much. Many thanks to our audience. See you next week.